We have turned in the book of Nehemiah to that second section, that second half of the book where we begin, we begin and it was all about building a wall. But as I've described before, the purpose of the building of the wall was for the building up of a people. That God intends to make his name known from this city through this people. So Nehemiah is not as much about building a wall as it is about building a people. The project of the wall was to give themselves, even sacrificially, in trust to the Lord and to his call upon them. Because the call upon them is much bigger than a short building project. The call of them is, is, is lives lived in obedience and, and following, in devotion to the Lord, and showing something of his likeness from Jerusalem to the nations. And so we've entered into that building up of people. We saw something of that chapter 8 last week in, in the, the building up of God's people through his word. God showing himself to them. And there's a response. There was a response in there. They, they, they saw something in the word that they had not been doing. They had not been stepping into in the way that it described and so God's people together took a next step forward in something they saw within God's word that this is how we live in that. And that was as simple as the Feast of Tabernacles. It was one of God's festivals. It was one of those divine object lessons given to his people to help them to remember, to cause conversations even among family. Dad, why are we living out in this tent instead of living in our home this week? Well, this is to help us remember how that for 40 years we were in the wilderness. God had redeemed us out of Egypt, and yet we had not trusted him to go into the land that he promised us. So we wandered for 40 years, but in those 40 years while we lived in temps, tents and temporary shelters... In fact, God himself dwelt in a tent with us there in the tabernacle in the wilderness. And his own presence was with us through those years. And God provided for us all along through those years. Our, our, our clothing never wore out. Our sandals never wore through. God provided for us manna from heaven to eat. He brought water from a rock in order for us to quench our thirst. Our God provided for us. Our God was with us, even in the midst of our failure to trust him. There was a lesson to be learned by them stepping into that divine object lesson, the Feast of Tabernacles. And they did that. And now we come, in, in chapter 9, we come to the 24th day of the month. And if you knew that the Feast of Tabernacles was from the 15th day through the 22nd day of the month, you'd connect these two chapters in that way. That this comes right after that. That that time of remembering did cause them to remember. It caused them to remember certainly they had much to give thanks for. But they also had much to grieve over. What do you do when a time of thanksgiving also brings out grief? What do we do with that? What do we do when Thanksgiving gives grief? We're going we're gonna to have Thanksgiving celebrations all around our community. And yet, such a wonderful holiday is not always a happy holiday. Perhaps you're like me and you can remember family celebrations in the past. 
growing up, when, when the family got together in a brighter circle, it wasn't always a happy occasion. There was some conflict there. There was some dysfunction. Or perhaps when you gather again or when you have a, a holiday, there's somebody who's left alone because there's somebody that's not here this year who was here last year. Or maybe there's somebody that normally is around that table that because of conflict within the family, because of stresses that have occurred even out of this moment that we're living in as a, as a community, that there's stresses or conflicts that have separated within families. And we won't be together the way we've been before. What do you do when Thanksgiving brings grief? The chapter that's before us is a chapter where they are remembering They're giving thanks for who God has been, but the reality of who God is for them also points out who we ourselves are as humanity. It shows God's great graciousness and long-suffering, and it also shows something about the humanity whom God suffers with. We see something about God we need to know here. We see something about ourselves that we need to know here. And so we, we, we approach this, this um, chapter, I want to think about their time of thanksgiving has brought grief, and what do they do with that grief? There's, there's certain things they do along the way, and, and we'll unpack that section by section. One last thing I want, to, I want to set the table with is this is a particular kind of event that is happening here. It's something called a covenant renewal. Now, this is something that has occurred at certain times in Israel's history, but it's, it's kind of strange to us. and We're thinking, well, what's going on here? God gave them the law. They entered that covenant together with Moses, and, and why would they redo that? Why would they make another covenant again? And they're not. They're reaffirming the covenant. Imagine it like this. Imagine a couple. They got married really young. They had no idea what they were doing. Well, that's okay. None of us really do. And it's been a little difficult at times. It it hasn't always been as it should have been. But somehow they made it through to 20 years. And at the 20th anniversary, they are happily celebrating 10 wonderful years together. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They haven't all been wonderful. But they decide we want to do a renewal of our vows. That we, we did not fully appreciate all those vows meant, but with some of the heartache, some of the grief, some of the difficulties of life that we have walked through and somehow by God's grace made it through together, we want to renew our vows and they mean something more to us now at this depth than they did at first. They're not getting remarried. They have been married, and they are still married. And yet they're reaffirming that covenant. That's what's going on here with the nation. This has happened several times through Israel's history, in fact. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, just before, after 40 years of wandering, when the first generation said, no, we, we're not going to go in the land, it's, it's not going to work, God's not going to give it to us, they didn't believe God, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Just before Joshua leads them in, there is a covenant renewal ceremony. That's called the book of Deuteronomy. When Moses again sets the covenant before them, and they reaffirm it, 
And then uh, you see that again in Joshua. In fact, the end of Joshua especially, where you have another generation. Joshua is now passing the torch, and he sets before them again. This is your covenant. If you do this, this is what it's going to look like. But when you do this, this is what's going to happen. You have this covenantal relationship with God, and he puts it before them again. And all of the people gathered say, yay and amen. They affirm the covenant. Another place where we see that happening in particular is is under King Josiah. It's been a long time since the people have thought much about God. In fact, they're the, under Josiah, the, the, the young king, they are, they are cleaning out the rubble out of the temple. And while they're doing that, they come across a copy of the book of God's law. Nobody's been paying attention to any of this for a while. When they open the pages and they see what's there, they say, oh my goodness, we're in a heap of trouble. Yeah, yeah. We have not been doing what God said, and God said this is going to be the cost of that. And they're starting to experience it. They've seen it already. And so they, that generation assembles together. Josiah assembles the nation, and they renew again their affirmation of the covenant that God has made with them. And so now, after the, those after Josiah departed again from that same covenant, and they were, in fact, carried away into exile. And now, according to God's promise, they have been restored, they have been returned, and that is the restoration that Nehemiah has reminded them, this is God's joy over you, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. You are precious to him. He promised to restore you, and he has. And that's what they celebrated in the Feast of Trumpets. And yet, they're remembering They're remembering God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness. And they gather to renew that covenant. But as they do, they remember. And so we're going to have, right now there is a, in BP Academy, there is a a, 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 a one quarter, um, 11 class sessions going through the Old Testament survey. Can you imagine trying to cover the Old Testament in 11 class sessions? Wow, that's a lot, right? That's drinking from a fire hydrant. Well, we're going to do it in one message today. You say, oh my, and I didn't bring lunch. In Nehemiah chapter 9, that's the kind of historical survey that we have. And it breaks into three pieces, three historical sections. The first one, chapters, or rather verses 6 to 25, is Genesis through Joshua. Then 26 to 31 takes all the rest from Judges through the monarchy. So consider it from Judges through 2 Kings. And then the third section comes to this post-exile day. These people of Nehemiah. Now this is how they see it in light of that past and what they do. So first of all, let's look into the past. Let's remember with them. I'm going to read through, beginning of verse 6, just hitting some of the high points. So I'll try to call out a verse number now and again just to, just to remind you of where we are as I'm sort of jumping through the chapter to catch. There's a, there's a certain tone in each section that I want you to catch. The first one has a pivot point right in the middle that actually is intended to surprise us. So from verse 6. They say, you are the Lord, you alone, you made heavens and all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, and you preserve all of them. 
Verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And then they ended up going back under the Babylonian Chaldeans. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers. You heard their cry. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You divided the sea. You cast the pursuers into the depths. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought water for them out of the rock. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. They did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey. were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to slavery in Egypt. But you... But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. You and your great mercy did not forsake them, verse 19. You did not depart from them, verse 20. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna. You gave them water for their thirst. Verse 21, 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms. So they took possession of the land of Sion and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants. You captured fortified cities and a rich land, houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Look at all that God has done. There's just that summary, and we read something of that in Psalm 136 as well. There's something important about renewing, reminding ourselves, renewing in our minds God's goodness to us. So there's the history, but did you catch that pivot point in the middle? But they, but you, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiffened their necks, but you, in the midst of their rebellion, in the midst of their self-serving, there's where we get the, 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 the core definition of God's character. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. In your great mercies, you did not forsake them. That's the core of God's character. That's the definitive statement out of the book of Exodus of who our God is. And it comes in the midst of the surprising revelation of who his people were in response to his redemption. And yet he continues to care for them. He continues to remain. God redeems them out of slavery. They are unfaithful and yet God brings them into the land. And continue to invite them. I will be your God. You be my people. You, out of all the peoples of the earth, I have chosen to make my name known through. 
Give thanks to God for who he is. Who God is is more than who we are. Who God is overcomes who we are. You see, the problem is, the problem that Nehemiah faces in building up a people, the problem that we as a church face in, in equipping the saints and building God's people is that the enemy is also working to tear down God's people. Even as Sanballat and Tobiah would have loved to, to get in there and to knock down those walls again, so the enemy would desire to tear down the building up work, the realization of who you are in Christ, the strengthening of your spirit to live new in knowing and following Jesus. And he would seek to drag you back. As I described before, he will lead you into temptation. And then when you fall, he will use that as a stick to beat you with and try to intimidate you from ever trying to come back again into God's grace. So the enemy will remind us of how poorly we measure up. And in the midst of that, we, we, we would be fools to try to counter the argument with, well, I'm not really so bad. That's kind of our default, isn't it? No, 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 I'm not really that bad. No, actually, I am. In fact, I'm worse. In fact, in the midst of his accusations, like Martin Luther used to say, he's probably missed a few. But that doesn't matter because Jesus died for that too. All of it is covered by the steadfast mercies of the Lord. All of it is covered by his steadfast love, his, his ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Who God is for me overcomes who I am. Give thanks for who God is. Even when they, but God is. That's the pivot I wanted you to see, that even in the midst of the worst possible historic rebellion, out of the redemption, they all saw it through the Red Sea. They all lived it. They all came through dry. And yet, and yet, Here's this golden calf. And you know, you think about that golden calf, it must have been a huge golden calf, right? Very impressive. You know, it was actually a very small golden calf. It was a little thing. It was a puny thing. And they said, this is your God who saved you. How dare they? And yet God keeps them. And yet God keeps us. That's the first thing. Give thanks when you gather around the table and you say, thank you, God, for this turkey, how about you say, thank you, God, for who you are for me because I desperately need you to be who you are for me because I know who I am. That's what we're going to be reminded of in the next section. Judges to the, through the monarchy, confess what you do. Confess who you are. Let's look at verse 26. In spite of becoming fat and delighted in the great goodness of God's abundant blessing, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and, caused, and cast your law behind their back. They killed your prophets. You, so you gave them into the hand of their enemies. And, they, and in the midst of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercy, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. This is the book of Judges. 
And this cycle repeats over and over again. God allows them to endure hardship. God allows them to endure suffering so that they will see their need for him, so that they will, they will call out to him again. But after they had rest, verse 28, they did evil again before you. You abandoned them to their enemies, so they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. There's the, there's the cycle in Judges. They, they go their own way. And so God's discipline comes upon them because God disciplines his own. It's his own children whom he disciplines as a loving father to bring them back to himself. And yet, once they had been delivered, then they circle around and do it again. It's rinse and repeat, over and over. Many, they did evil before you. Many times they, you delivered them according to your mercies. Then verse 29, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commands. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them from your by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Verse 31, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, um, a, a, a line of thinking out there in theological circles that says God gave Israel an opportunity and Israel blew it so God is done. And now God has moved on and he's moved on to you. Aren't you glad? Well, that's good if you're us. And we think, well, sorry for Israel, but I guess Jewish people today could still be included in us. But wait, what does it say about the faithfulness of God? What does it say about the mercy of God, the inexhaustible mercy of God? The faithfulness of God to keep his promise, to keep his covenant anyway. That's the way this, this section ends. You see, it starts in verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient. And then it ends in verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them because you are a gracious and merciful God. And so the thing to do there is to realize to remember God's faithfulness and to realize my own unfaithfulness and how much I do need this mercy, this forgiveness of God. But rather than to debate it, rather than to wiggle away from it, rather than to avoid it, to do what John tells us in 1 John 1.8, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's, he's faithful because that's his promise. He's just to do so because that's exactly the sin and guilt and shame that Jesus died for. It's been paid for. All that's necessary is for us to say, yes, God, I believe you concerning your son. God, I believe you that this, this is my sin, and I am so thankful for your Savior. So we confess what we do. When, who, when we are who we are, let me say it this way, when we are who we are, God is still who God is. You see why it's so important that we know who God is in the first section? We know his faithfulness. We know that he is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. That is the answer to who we are. 
So often we think in our approach, our relationship with God is, is a transactional thing. That I will do this and then God will do that. And if I do the right things, then God will do the good things. Because so much of our relationships work that way. Other human relationships function that way. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, right? There's a mutual benefit, one for another, a, 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 a give and return. And yet, our God is abundantly gracious and merciful, giving far beyond what we would ever have claimed to. Nevertheless, when they were disobedient, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them. You know, first of all, there is, there is a danger of presumption. There's a danger of presuming on God's patience. That because God is who he is, I mean, you ever been in a conversation with somebody, they're, they're, they're heading towards doing what they know to be wrong. You know it's wrong, they know it's wrong, God's word is clear, but what's the response? But God will forgive me, right? There's a danger of presuming upon the patience of God, of taking God's mercy for granted. Because just because you seem to be getting away with it doesn't mean that you are or doesn't mean that you will. One of the things of, of Israel's history, it tells us there are consequences of sin. God hates sin not because God's fussy. God hates sin because it is so destructive to those whom he loves. Read you. God hates sin. He hates the sin that we are tempted by because he knows of its destructiveness to you and to me. Because our God loves us. And so he will, there will be consequences. He will chase it. If we, if we insist on hiding in that ditch, God will pour water into the ditch. He will make it miserable there. He'll allow it to be miserable there so that we will, like in the history of God's people, we will call upon him again, that our hearts would be returned back to him. This judges through kings, through the end of the monarchy, is well summed up by the prophet Jeremiah. I call Isaiah the pleading prophet because Isaiah is the last best chance for Israel to, to turn around and to come back, to trust their Lord instead of all their other schemes and political alliances and relationships with surrounding countries against the latest bully empire. Israel's the best chance for them to return again and trust the, the Lord their God, but they do not. And so after Isaiah comes Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, because the end is written. It's going to happen. Pack your bags. We're going to Babylon. And in the midst of the crumbling of Jerusalem, in the midst of that destruction, the prophet Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations, and it is a lamentation. It is a book of mourning. It is a book of grief. It is a very intentionally designed book, how it is constructed. I won't go into all of that, but let's, let's, just, let's just jump right in the middle. In fact, what I think is the center of the book, what I think is the key point of the book, around verse 19 of chapter 3, we'll start there. Remember my afflictions and my wandering. The wormwood and the, and the gall. There's a bitterness here. There's a sadness. There's loss and grief and mourning. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind 
and therefore I have hope. In the midst of Jerusalem, the apple of God's eye being ruined, this I call to mind, and therefore I still have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Hint, it is coming. He is coming. So even in the midst of this world today, we wait for the salvation of our God, knowing that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Not because of what goes on in the world around us, not because of what goes on in the midst of your life and in the midst of your heart. His mercies never come to an end. For those who have been redeemed by the Passover lamb, out of bondage, to slavery and sin, have been redeemed and called out and given new life. For you, his mercies never come to an end. The steadfast love of your Lord never ceases. So confess who you are. Confess what you do. But in light of God's forgiveness, in light of God's redemption, when we are who we are, God is still who God is. And that brings us then to this current generation in Nehemiah and what they will do with this. So verse 32, in this confession they now say, Now therefore, O our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love on that basis, let not the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our priests, our princes, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. He said, we're in misery. We have lived in captivity. All that we had, all that you had given us has been taken away. And we live in the ruins. We live in the rubble. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. You have done all along exactly what you said you would do. We're the ones who have not. And so, verse 38, they turn again to reaffirm the covenant. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document of the names of our princes. And that leads us into chapter 10, so I'm going to pause there. The Hebrew chapter actually starts in that last verse of chapter 9. So we're going to pause that and save that for a future time after Advent. But what they are doing here is they are returning again to that covenant that God made with them. Knowing that God is a covenant-keeping God. That as they have departed from them, Him, so they can also return to Him because He has never forsaken them. And here's where we need to remind ourselves of that as well. That God is a covenant-keeping God. And He uses this first covenant... He uses this covenant with Moses and Mount Sinai and all the sacrifices and and all of that that bleeds through the Old Testament. He does that for the sake of showing us over and over again the, the, the human sinful condition and our need for a substitute. There is a sacrifice. There is the substitute for sin. 
but it's never good enough. It always, need to be re- it always needs to be repeated. And through this history, though God is very clear about it, if God would just tell me what I need to do, I'll do it, and we'll all be good. And yet they never are. If God could just tell you ten things, just ten things, do these ten things, and we're good, would you be? And the answer is no. And, and the flow of human history shows it to be so. And so God says, he would make a new covenant. And this is, this is what we rally around now today. Even as they affirm the covenant that God had made with them, we have the privilege of affirming, reminding ourselves, standing in, committing to a new covenant. I'm not here to tell you today to tell you, try harder with the law. That will never get you there. There's an old, there's lines from an old hymn I love to repeat. Run, run, and do the law commands, but it gives me neither feet nor hands. A better thing the gospel brings. It bids me fly, and it gives me wings. That gospel is the new covenant that is given to us in, in, the, in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. Well, it's given in Jeremiah, the same weeping prophet Jeremiah who knows they're going to Babylon, but he also knows God's going to bring them back. It's it's, it's going to be costly. It's going to be miserable. But he knows God is going to bring them back. And he's going to bring them back under a new covenant. And God has, has also included you and I in that covenant. Hebrews 8 describes it this way. That Moses developed, um, um, presented all these things as was shown him on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, But, verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8, but as it is, Christ has obtained a, a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. Moses, the law, Mount Sinai. As the covenant Jesus mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But... Nothing wrong with the covenant. Nothing wrong with God's law, but the problem is with the people. Verse 8 says, But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. The problem was with them. For this is the covenant I will make. I will put my law in their minds. I will write on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And you remember Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. For the what? For the forgiveness, the remission, the end of your sins. He's put it away. He says, he, say, he goes on there in Jeremiah and in the quote in Hebrews 8, For their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. It'll be brought up to you. You'll remember. And what do you do when even thanksgiving before the Lord reminds you of grief or brings grief as well? What do you do with that? You remember not only, not only the regret, but you remember his redemption. That we trust who God is for you. 
You have dealt faithfully, even when we have acted wickedly. There are three things I wanted us to gather up and be sure we took with us out of this chapter. First of all, I need to know who God truly is. That's, that's terribly important for the Christian life. I need to have a right grasp of who God is in terms of his faithful mercies, his graciousness toward me. Because Romans 12, for instance, Romans 12.1 is a turning point in the epistle to the Romans calling us into the Christian life where Paul says, I urge you then, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to present your body's living sacrifice. Why would you do that? The only basis for giving your life in following Jesus is because of the mercies of God toward you. We need to know who our God is on our behalf. Secondly, I need to recognize, I need to realize how stiff-necked and self-centered I can be. There's the need of confession. I need to see God as he is. I need to have an understanding of, of, of my tendencies as well. That Israel is not so different from us. We will see something of what they do in what we do. And that should, we should be reminded here that God is so quick to receive you. God is so quick to incline his ear, his ear to your confession. Don't let it sit there between you. Don't let it linger and cause you what it does Our sin does not chase God away from us because it's been paid for in Jesus. You know what it does? It chases us from God. It causes us to back away in shame. It causes us to hide there on the fringes where the light won't be so shining so much upon us, he says. We think. If I'll just back away a little bit, I'm only worthy to be on the fringes. When God would call us near, God wants to receive us intends to receive us and thus if we confess our sins he is faithful so it's we don't need to hide and play games about our sin we confess it not that i have to technically i have to confess it each and every time so that god will let it go god has already forgiven it in jesus i need to remind myself that he has redeemed me, that he has forgiven me. I need to agree with God concerning his forgiveness of my sin. And I need to know that as much as in my flesh I am who I am, that God in his forgiveness will always be who God is. I need to know that. Not just Thanksgiving week, every week. You know, Timothy needed to know this. Often we think of apostles and pastors as somehow different than the rest of us. And yet Paul writes these words to Timothy. It's a faithful saying. He says, trust this, count on this. When we are unfaithful, yet God continues to be faithful because he cannot deny himself. That sounds a whole lot like a one-verse summary of Nehemiah chapter 9, doesn't it? So if Nehemiah chapter 9 has been a lot for you to digest, that whole Old Testament or one-shot kind of thing, just take this, remember this, walk away with this. Even when I am unfaithful, God will remain faithful. He cannot deny himself, and he has promised you. Your sin, your guilt, he will remember no more. That's done for you. That's done for me. 
in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you, Father, that as far as the east is from the west, so far you have removed our transgressions from us, Lord. There is so much to remember and be thankful for when we consider giving thanks. Lord, in this week, maybe somebody will ask us what we're thankful for. Might forgiveness be there? Forgiveness that you have given to us. And out of that, Lord, the ability to forgive another. Lord, use this beauty of forgiveness that you have given your church. Lord, let us model this toward those around us. To forgive others even as God in Christ has forgiven us. Something that those around us desperately need to see. And when they see something of forgiveness in us, Lord, our, our desire, our prayer is that they would see something about forgiveness from you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.